0: Hey, I'm Lisa, and welcome to In Pursuit. This episode is a part of the informational interview series where I do exactly that. Informational interviews are a way to understand the inner workings of various professions, and I hope to do so by interviewing different professionals in my life. Not only is it a way to share their stories and their experiences from undergrad to where they are now, but also for listeners to be able to explore the different professions and pathways that are available in life. There are so many different, not only destinations, but also ways to get there, and wherever you are in life, I hope you learn something new. For today's episode in particular, I sat down with my professor, Professor Gary Menard, and he was my computer science professor over the summer actually. So as soon as I heard his story and just his experience being in the military and then also studying philosophy and then actually working in computer science, I had to hear the rest of it. And so I'm really excited that he came on and told me the full story. I won't give away too much, but let's just say there are so many added factors into who he is now, such as experiences from when he was a little boy and his time traveling and driving around Europe to what it has been like teaching and why after all this time he hasn't retired, even though people try to get him to, and just his passion for instilling different values in his students is so admirable. So I loved getting to chat with him and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and learned something. Hey,
1: I'm Jerry Menard. I'm a long time lifelong teacher. I teach currently at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. I teach computer science, and I've been here about 15 years. I've been teaching for about 45 years, so I'm in the end stages, I guess you would say of my teaching. My background in teaching, uh, my original graduate work was in philosophy, and I taught philosophy for a long time. But I was interested in artificial intelligence in philosophy, and that caused me as A.I. became more mature to gravitate a little bit in the direction of computer science midway through career. I went back on sabbatical and got a graduate degree in computer science as things went on uh, one way or another. I ended up teaching full time in computer science and I've been here at Saint for 15 years and uh, midwesterner grew up in Kansas. Think of myself as a small town Kansas boy, always wanted to live by the mountains by the sea, but I stayed in the Midwest except for my military experience, which took me different places. So I've got a nice family, uh, kids are grown, uh, enjoy living in the Midwest, enjoy teaching. I could have retired some time ago. They keep giving me incentives, but I'm still at it. So, so I'm a small college teacher. I like to teach, I like to be in the classroom.
0: Speaking about your upbringing, what was the first thing you can remember that you wanted to be?
1: I, I don't know that I had any particular ambition. I think by the time I was in, um, well, I was interested in science and math. I, I remember reading about rocket ships. This is before Sputnik, before uh, all of that. But this was in the early 50s when I was a uh, kid. Our little high school had about 100 students, and there were 25 students in my class. And everybody had a little poem, the, you know, and mine was, uh, He will excel on life. Path because he excels in science and math or something like that. And so the, the, my peers knew me as liking science and math. But I think I was pretty well-rounded. I uh, played football and basketball and track. Everybody had to do that in a small, small town. And so in terms of my career trajectory, I began to think about teaching. First of all, going to college and maybe thinking I could go to graduate school. And um, Fairly early on in um, college, I think I wanted to become a teacher. Oh. So once I once I moved on to that path, once I went into philosophy, there really wasn't any other option. and I wasn't in- interested in any other option.
0: And I've never done
1: anything else other than Uncle Sam taking me out of graduate school for two years.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience serving and how that has influenced you as a person, as a professor.
1: Serving in the army it was a really good experience. Uh, I didn't want to go. This was during the Vietnam War. I was a graduate student at Notre Dame. I'm Presbyterian, but I've been at Catholic colleges all my life. Uh, except after I went to a Presbyterian college, but then it was in graduate school and in philosophy and, you know, at uh, Notre Dame. And then I taught in one, two, three different Catholic colleges on the was ever since. But I remember that we didn't even think about going to the service. And particularly, a lot of the philosophy students at Notre Dame had studied for the priesthood and decided not to become priests. So they knew philosophy because they had all that preparation. And they had never, it never crossed their mind that they might be in a war uh, firing a weapon that was really a time of uh, self-examination there in the department by everybody. There were nine of us that were drafted at the same time because they took graduate students first. We were the first ones to lose our deferments. And so we all went at once and we all went to the head of our class because they were drafting in Kansas at 19 and I was 24. So uh, I appealed, I tried not to go, uh, but they took me. And so I served and I ended up in Germany in uh, fifth Corps headquarters. And I learned a lot about the military, and I had the chance to travel Europe. And so it was a really good experience. And people will kind of remark on how much I talk about the Army, given that it was 50 years ago, and it was just two years out of my life. I worked in the commanding general's office, and so I saw everything from the top, uh, kind of through his eyes. And so you got a real bird's eye view of the uh, way the military worked even though I was a private. All, all layers in the headquarters there, you had lots of officers, lots of officers. so it was, uh, and I was mature enough, I was 24, that I could appreciate being in Europe and being in Frankfurt, in the center of Europe where you could travel any direction in a weekend and be in another country. Mm. I, I traveled a hundred days, I think, altogether. together. I was discharged. I was coming back from my PhD comps. I'd been drafted out of graduate school, so
0: I uh, wasn't particularly anxious to
1: come back because I didn't want to get back in time to take the PhD comps with the other uh, class. And so you could be discharged in Europe and get a free flight home up to a year. So I asked to be discharged in Europe, bought a car and traveled around uh, particularly the uh, beautiful parts of Europe, the Switzerland, Austria with the car. i would seen other places by train and plane and so on. And so then I, I got to see a lot of the cars. at a time that the weather was right and the crowds were right. so I saw Paris in the fall I saw Italy and Rome in April before it got warm so that was, that, that was it was a good experience for me given that I didn't ask to go <laughs> and I didn't have to blame myself for choosing it you know it, it happened to me and I just took it as it was and uh, enjoyed it
0: did you travel to all those countries by yourself when you were driving around?
1: Different ways. I was on tours. I took American Express bus tour to Paris and to Italy. One of my uh, supervisors had a Volvo, and we took a trip, weekend trip to Holland just on a Saturday and Sunday to see the tulips. And I had a friend, interesting friend, Larry Kimura. Was, uh, there were many of us that were there that had master's degrees. Uh, because they were drafting all these graduate students. And he had a master's degree in sociology from the University of Hawaii, but he was teaching Hawaiian because he was one of the very few people who could speak Hawaiian who was well-educated because they were trying to keep the language alive. And he and I traveled to England uh, on a, a flight, and then after I had my car, we traveled in Austria. So we went to Austria, and, like and then I, I did find my family, my grandfather had immigrated from Switzerland in 1850, didn't marry until late, so he was long uh, dead before I was born, but he spoke French to his family and wrote to them in French, and I was able to trace the family who had been out of touch for 30 years, 35 years because of the language, and I found them. And I found the niece that wrote to him in print and showed her, her letters. And she had pictures of my dad when he was a boy. And so that was something I did by myself, but ended up doing with family.
0: How did you even trace them?
1: He was from a small town, of about, about the town I grew up, maybe 400. And I just wrote to the city mayor of the town because I had the address from my nieces. Um, letters or my aunts, well, my dad's cousin. We lost a generation because he was so late marrying. He didn't marry until he was 50 and my dad was He was uh, 50 and some by the time my dad was born. So there was another generation uh, there in Switzerland. But um, so they wrote back. And it was, uh, it was a month, my third cousin wrote back and uh, invited me to come down. So then I spent a week with That's
0: amazing. That's such a beautiful story. So by the time you guys left for Germany, you had already had your master's degree?
1: Right. I did my undergraduate work, and then I was in my second year of graduate study. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go into too much detail, but the, when, the, when, they, when there was more and more pressure to end the deferments because African Americans and et cetera were doing all the serving and all the fighting and all the dying, um, there was pressure to end the deferments. And of course, there was a huge constituency that didn't want to lose their deferments. And so we were a small, easy target. We had already had five years of, uh, of, of deferments. And if you're in your second year of graduate study, they gave you five more years to finish. So you were essentially finished. If you were in But I was still working on my master's. You're a first year student. Then you lost your deferments. And I put it off for a year, so I lost my deferment in uh, the first summer. And I was finally drafted in January of my fourth semester, and I requested to finish the semester. So I went, uh, and they gave it. They didn't have master's students, but they ad hoc gave us oral exams. So if we didn't get back, then we'd have some. And a lot of the fellas didn't come back. They took jobs to avoid the draft, or they just, you know, got married and did other things.
0: So there were three out of the nine of
1: us that were drafted that went back, including my best man. It was uh, Bernard. it was the one that actually got all the bad rolls of the dice and ended up in Vietnam shortly after he was married. So he was married and and they were separated uh, until he was able to come home. Mm.
0: So when did you get back for your second master's?
1: I did my graduate work two years, and then two years of service, and then four more years. So it took me six years to get my PhD. Mm -hmm. And then I taught, and the opportunity came, a fellowship opportunity for philosophers to pursue their master's degree in computer science at Wright State University. And this was in 1985. So by that time, I had been teaching um, about 10 years. So I was about 10 years into my academic career teaching uh, when I went back from my graduate study in computer science.
0: What made you go back?
1: Well, a couple of things. The college which I taught at for a long time eventually closed. It was not a, an affluent college. And I had this interest. I was interested in philosophical issues with artificial intelligence. That's the reason I went to Notre Dame, because they had a program which was very innovative at the time I remember watching the Today Show one morning on TV, and Jane Pauley mentioned artificial intelligence, and that was the first time I had heard it used in public. So I was studying it in 1968, and it really didn't come into the language until 10 or fifteen years later. But so I had this interest, and as it uh, matured, and people began to do more things, not just talk about it, but actually get results, and commercially. Then I felt the need, if I was going to be interested in that, that I had to know more about computer science. And so I started to take computer science classes. And then this unique opportunity came for philosophers uh, at Wright State University, and they paid me to go. And so on sabbatical, I got half paid for, for the university, and then essentially free tuition and half paid from the uh, from Wright State. And so I spent a year and a half there, very intensively working on my business. So after that, then I began to do a little beach. And then with this college that I was at for a long time closed, then I had to jump one direction or the other, and it was much more easy to find a job in computer science, particularly if you were senior. By that. Mm-hmm.
0: Was that transition uh, easy for you?
1: The transition to computer science, I did very gradually because I was doing both Mm -hmm. and I was a math major as an undergraduate. So people think of philosophy and computer science as maybe being opposite ends. But actually there's a lot in common in terms of interest in language and rationality and reasoning and logic Uh, and the fact that I had that in the math background uh, made that path fairly smooth. When I did shift to teach full time after the college closed, Then I had to learn everything. I couldn't just pick, you know, cherry pick the classes that I was interested in, which are primarily A.I. classes. So that was a bit of a transition. And of course, the transition of of, uh, having to close a college and start from scratch and find a job. uh, I never really looked for a job other than the first one. And so, but I landed on my feet and I found a nice position. Uh, And so terms of what it could be. It was very, very small. A little traumatic to the family because I went to Clark College in Dubuque, another Catholic college about um, 75 miles away north. Oh, I'm still on the Mississippi. Um, but I took an apartment there. And so I was away from my family for five days a week, 30 weeks a year, which is not bad. It's not like, you know, not as if I couldn't get home. I would come home once a week. Uh, and then I got a chance to come back to St. Ambrose. Uh, which is just 15 blocks from my house. Eventually, I circled and came back home. It's hard to believe i have been here more than half as long as I was a married So, so I'm, I'm in my 16th year.
0: What is an experience that has been memorable for you that has shaped you into how you've built yourself into who you are today?
1: So I would say that the fact that I was so small as a child, I was always the lightest, shortest, kid in the class, small town. It was all the same students in the class growing up. We had the same classmates, about 25 of us, all the way from grade school through high school off and on. Uh, and I remember the traumatic experience when I was in the sixth grade, the teacher, they wouldn't do that now, um, to teach us averages, weighed every student and put our uh, weights on the board and averaged them. And I weighed 61 pounds in the sixth grade, which was about 10 pounds less than any girl in the class And I still remember that. But I think mowing lawns, working on the farm, I had to work harder, I had to be stronger. Smallest kid on the football team. Uh, I think it, it toughened me up a little bit and made me more persistent and more patient. And then when I worked construction, working my way through college, again, they were hesitant to hire me because of my size. And I ended up working for them for three and a half years. Uh, Paid my way through college every summer. And so I think that being small, having to do more, built me up and gave me persistence and patience. And so I would say that's always uh, stood me in good stead. I don't know that I'm glad that I'm short and thin. Everybody wants to lose weight. I always wanted to gain weight. But I think all in all, it built my character in a way that helped me out helped me get through college, helped me get through graduate school, When I wasn't uh, the brightest or I wasn't the strongest. You find out that there are a lot of people that are smarter than you when you go to a PhD program in philosophy at a major university. But I learned that staying in there, I say, a turtle that's slow and steady finishes the race. I don't win the race, but I finish the race, and I've outlasted a lot of people that were along there with me uh, just because I'm in there, and I think I owe that partly to being 61 pounds in the the
0: sixth grade and going back to how you said that some people might think that computer science and philosophy are on two different ends of the spectrum what are some of the issues that lie at that intersection and how have they changed from when you were studying it all those years ago to today
1: well well first of all i would say you know philosophy is a very wide-ranging discipline Mm -hmm. you might study greek philosophy or uh, Catholic medieval philosophy and uh, not get anywhere near computer science, but there's a lot of mathematics in philosophy and there's a lot of mathematics in computer science. I would say a difference in terms of uh, what's going on in terms of, compute, of uh, AI and computer science is that the discipline is so much more mature and there are so many places that it's being used that it almost permeates the culture now. So that one probably thinks of uh, anything you do now involves some AI. Your smartphone uh, listens to you and can understand what you say. My thesis at right State was on natural language processing. And so very, very primitive compared to, to what it is now. But when, when I was first uh, studying it, it was uh, there was a lot of emphasis on games being able to play checkers or chess that would be and of course very very slow compared to what you can do now uh, a lot of these very powerful mechanisms are not so much due to well they are due to more sophistication but they're just faster they could do it a thousand times as fast or a million times as fast and so they can get to answers quicker you can explore more moves in a chess game by far by you know orders of magnitude. But in some ways, it's still very much similar. And one thing that I would notice is that the hype is still similar. That is, people like to think of it as some kind of magic. And they're always making big promises about what's around the corner. And what's around the corner keeps receding. At the same time, you know, there have been breakthroughs, like you can uh, talk to your computer. And so the language, skill of the machine, so much better. And part of that is capacity, and part of it is, uh, you know, just speed. You can run through a dictionary, you can make more sophisticated, grammatical, mapping, but uh, it's a combination.
0: And I also know that you have some interest in the ethics. So what are some issues that lie there?
1: Well, so in computer science, there's a very standard set of issues that I teach. One is intellectual property. So, what kind of control can you have over software, in terms of copyright and patent? And so that's a big issue. There are lots of court cases. Just this week, I was studying with the students, Google versus Oracle. Oracle is a huge corporation that has a database system, and they are suing Google, have been since 2010. Over the Android operating system, which uses the language Java, and Sun created Java, and Oracle bought out Sun when Sun went bankrupt, and Google never got a license from Sun. Uh, that was kind of okay with Sun, but Oracle has sued them, and the issue is whether or not uh, the code that they're using can be protected by copyright. So that comes before the Supreme Court this next session. It was supposed to come before the Supreme Court last session, but because of the pandemic, they slowed way down. So intellectual property, free speech. So when you talk about speech on uh, on Facebook and Twitter and all the political controversy, so that is always an issue um, with social media. Uh, privacy is a great issue. I don't mean an exciting or good I mean, it is an important issue and I've been doing this for about 30 years. And so it's interesting to see what what issues ebb and flow. And so privacy has always been around, but now it's it's, very, it's on the front burner. And same with free speech. So those those are issues that probably the biggest three that, that we talk about. In terms of privacy, you can talk about you know your commercial privacy as a consumer, where they watch you on the internet, you know, and then you can talk about employee privacy, how you're observed at work whether you can have private conversations everything we do is electronic so since they own the machinery they can trace everything that you do and so there could be a lot of very very close scrutiny of you and then there's citizenship privacy which is the fourth amendment and the right of the government to watch you and so there have been supreme court decisions about that particularly with cell phone uses so it used to be that you could listen to a phone conversation You couldn't without a warrant listen to the words, but you could uh, check where they, like a public phone bill, where the uh, call started, who was to, and how long it lasted. So that's part of the phone bill, and they they could subpoena that. But now with location and a smartphone, they can actually trace your behavior. So if you've got a smartphone that's watching things as you go along, uh, they could watch where you went for the last three months and know everywhere you went everywhere where you stopped and everywhere you used your phone uh, by the cell towers. That's another issue. With respect to AI, uh, now you have the notion of driving cars and new philosophical issue that's uh, at any rate come to the front is uh, legal liability by artificial intelligence. So if I create a car that's self-driving that car gets in an accident, who's to blame? Uh, is it uh, the person who owns the car, is it the person who wrote the software for the car, the person who sold the car, is the car to blame? And so those are thorny issues that are, are being explored very intensively now because insurance companies are going to have to cope with that very quickly. They're already coping with it if there's a fatality so another thing that's related to that is you know your black box in a uh, an airplane when it crashes well now cars have black boxes so you can tell when somebody enters you know, the intersection when they put on the brakes because it tracks all of that just like you can see what happened to it so there's lots of issues uh, there that are legal issues and ethical issues some of that is always the same but some of it's always changing okay the fundamental issues of privacy and so on are all the same but how it surfaces is changes with the technology.
0: It must be so interesting to be able to see the transition over time and... And
1: It's so fast. I mean, it doesn't happen slowly. I taught, when I first taught at Clark, and I had a textbook, uh, they did not mention Google. This was 2000, and so there wasn't any such thing as Google that people knew about. And uh, YouTube, I remember it exploded from nothing to 700,000 users in a year. And so Google Glasses, things like that, I've seen all those things come, and, and my, some of my students, they've seen some things come too, but, but it's hard for them to imagine that that wasn't always there. So, you know, going back to the point where in my little college, there weren't any computers on campus. But the first computer majors for undergraduates so that's a long way to come in terms of what you see and what what machines and how the issues are achieved
0: what would you say uh you're most passionate about
1: well obviously teaching and although my title is computer science uh, my upbringing was philosophy i spent six years studying philosophy i spent 18 months 16 months graduate work in computer science Uh, and so I taught logic for years and years and years. And particularly these days, uh, when you see references to fake news and uh, you see how people are manipulated by things, Uh, teaching intellectual independence, teaching students to think and reason for themselves and to uh, see misleading information for what it is. I would say um, integrity, independence, thinking for yourself is what I hope most for my students. Whatever just my, my wife would uh, joke that uh, every time, every every TV, every TV ad is fallacious. You have an attractive person uh, and so on.
0: I think of Bill Cosby
1: selling Jell-O. Now, why did he sell Jell-O? Because he was funny, people liked him. Jell-O pudding, well now, of course, uh, different stories. So, so there is so much that is superficially persuasive and that's symptomatic of how people can be persuaded, I mean could be swayed if they're not on their guard and they're not kind of educated about those temptations. Those temptations are still strong, you can't get rid of them, but you can be aware of them and, and try to work. So I'd say that's my. And of course, it's quite, it's a little bit different in computer science. I still get to do my philosophy with legal and ethical issues. So, so they still write papers. They still think for themselves. They still critique the courts. Uh, they have to write a, a paper on a court ruling, and they have to digest that and understand it and, and its reasoning. And then they do at least a limited critique of that. So I still do that. But even in the, just the courts, the two took, but you're just learning to program and learning the integrity of an algorithm and how to do it right. So there's a little bit of of that passion there too. So it's not all just saving the world or making people think for themselves on moral issues, but certainly thinking for themselves, uh, just being able to think for themselves in a constructive, critical way. And You do that in computer science, kind of in a different topic, but nonetheless, a reasoning well and thinking things through and uh, understanding. I don't know when I'll quit. I, I have to sometimes, but
0: I'm not quite ready yet. What would be your biggest piece of advice to your 20-year-old self?
1: Well, I thought about that when I saw the question, and I would say it's just what I said, is that to be patient and persistent and to keep at it, that's pretty pedestrian advice, but I do remember when I graduated from high school at the commencement, we had uh, a, a faculty member, the dean from the University of Kansas, which was quite a feather in the cap of a little town to have that. But the banker, L.B. Campbell, was the chair of the board. And he stood up for about one minute and said, uh, get up every morning and go to work. And I think that's the best advice that I've ever received. And so I think I learned, speaking of 20, I was 20 I was a sophomore in college or 19 or 20 and I was a procrastinator all through high school I was a procrastinator into college uh, to keep myself doing things I would overcommit. commit uh, and my sophomore year I was taking 20 credits and I went on two trips to the west coast and the east coast with the singing group and the debate team and I ran out of gas and I got my grade point caught way down and I think uh, that taught me uh, not to try to do too much at once Uh, and I'm not very good at that always I still overcommit. but moving steady keeping at it that's that's the lesson I would have told myself at the age of 18 uh, so I wouldn't have had that crash uh, the second semester of my sophomore year in college
0: and what is your top book recommendation
1: I don't know that I would recommend this to other people but the two or three books that I've benefited most from, Walden by Henry Thoreau, I was an English major, and uh, Walden has philosophy and uh, science and uh, literature in it. So that's a book that I still read from time to time. It's by my nightstand. Another one is Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before the Mast. Um, that's uh, a travelogue. He was at Harvard, He actually, road knew of him, and he had vision problems, and they said he should get away from school and take a, a, a sailing trip, and, but he signed on as a sailor, not as a passenger, and that's why it's called Before the Mass, because he was not a passenger. And he was two very rough, hard years, and so I loved reading that book, a little bit at a time. And, and then I studied Shakespeare, I studied Shakespeare as an English major two semesters. And so I, I don't read it for pleasure so much, but Shakespeare knows human nature better than anybody. And so I, I never tire of uh, reading a little bit of Shakespeare at the time. I needed the support of the class to study 18 of the plays, but uh, over, over two semesters, but, but I still have that by my nightstand. But I also read romance novels just for nothing. I do that, my wife and I take a trip to North Carolina to the Outer Banks, and the first time I took my textbooks, and it was very upsetting to her that I was studying on the break. So so now we take these uh, very light romance novels, we go to uh, Corolla and the little library there in that little town uh, near the Outer Banks, and they give us these free romance novels, and I read those on the beach. So I I go all the way from Shakespeare to the other end in terms of uh, sweet, happy
0: endings. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sharing. Thank you, this has been fun. And that was my episode with my professor. I, again, I really just loved everything that he said and how he spoke about his story and it wasn't so much uh, about his everyday life and his everyday life as a professor more so as the journey he has taken to get there which I think is so unique and is just different and I loved how he spoke about it so I hope you enjoy this episode and everything that was mentioned like the books and stuff will be linked in the show notes so make sure to check those out if you're interested and I will see you guys next time bye